Okay, here we're in the book of Ruth at the minute. If you've been with us the last six weeks, we've been journeying through this text. Um, ancient book of Ruth, trying to figure out, understand the implications, what it might have to say to us as a people living in the 21st century. Um, it's a story of love. It's a story that explores themes around identity and belonging, survival. And... Uh, We've been saying all along in this series that these little small stories, these intimate stories um, of redemption, they all point and give hint to this bigger redemptive work that is going on in the scriptures. And it's like the little stories all add up and push on the big story of redemption. The story that we as the people of God, as, as Jesus followers, are part of. The story of God's renewal of all things. The story of God recreating this world and putting it in its intended way, a place of flourishing, uh, a world of flourishing, of justice, of peace, of reconciliation, of forgiveness, and so on. So Ruth is one of these little stories in the scriptures that point us to the big story and make it up. And the closer we look at it, we've seen these, these themes, as I've said, these universal themes of, of human beings' struggle and of God's work in the world. And as we've, we've said as well, uh, up to this point in the Old Testament, when you've, if you've been reading the Old Testament, you read the Torah, uh, there's all these great heroes of the faith, um, and a lot of them are men, and Ruth is different to that because um, it's a very ordinary story about ordinary things, and it's a, it's a story in a very patriarchal setting and where women are front and center, um, and uh, there's a beautiful perspective that we get when we see what that story says to us, and God's working in behind this ordinary story. Um, all the time. God's not mentioned in the book uh, or doesn't speak in the book. He's mentioned in the book, but God doesn't speak in the book. Um, but uh, yeah, Ruth's given us this new perspective on the, on the bigger story, the bigger nature of God's redemptive work in the world. And as I've said all along, and Stephanie spoke last week, we're not doing this series. We haven't done the series unintentionally. It's completely intentional that we are reading the story of Ruth in the current news cycle that we're in and the current political culture that we live in today because the reading of Ruth gives these hints and pointers and helps perhaps us engage with the kinds of questions that are raised in a world uh, that we live in today, a world where the likes of Brexit is on the table or where the likes of conversation around identity and borders, there's issues with mass immigration. Um, Ruth is an amazing thing, has an amazing thing to say to us. I wanna quickly recap where we've been. The story so far, as you know, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just do a little bit of a summary of the story and we're going to wrap it up today. I'm going to bring this plane into land, hopefully. So stick with me. I'm going to do a little summary and um, we've got a bit of time this morning. Um, we've been following this somewhat unconventional family, these two women, Ruth and Naomi. And you remember the story where Naomi's husband, Elimelech, and their two sons, they'd left Israel during this economic crisis, this famine. They'd left Israel and went for refuge in the foreign land of Moab. And it was in Moab, as you remember, that Elimelech, Naomi's husband, and her two sons died. And that left Naomi and her daughter-in-law's uh, widows. And so having lost everything, Naomi decides to return, as we know, to the homeland of Israel with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And uh, those famous words that Ruth offers to, to Naomi, she utters those words, 
to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. So Ruth the Moabite decides to go back to Israel with her mother-in-law. And when we see this radical kindness, this love that Ruth had, this committed, steadfast, loyal love toward uh, Naomi, and we've said along that that hesed love, that's a big theme in this book. And it speaks of the love that God has for his people. So the word, Hebrew word is used for God's steadfast love in the Psalms and the prophets and other books. Um, so there's a, there's a mirroring here of the love of God and this love between this Moabite woman, Ruth, and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And it's transcending these ethnic um, identities. It's transcending the differences between an Israelite woman and a Moabite woman. Of course, those two people groups are enemies or were enemies, and despite that, um, they brought they crossed those borders, as it were, and they crossed those differences, and they find each other in this somewhat unconventional family. Returning back to the homeland of, of Israel or Naomi's homeland, anyway, um, and you see that that priv that that that, that hesed love of Ruth worked out and demonstrated toward Naomi. She also is not just laying down those differences, but laying down her privilege in a sense. She could have stayed behind in her own land and just got on with her life. As a, as a widower, she could have remarried and had a family and moved on. And, um, but she decides to stay committed to this woman that she loves dearly. And so we see them go back in chapter two. Um, Naomi and Ruth are back in Bethlehem and we now begin to see Ruth's resilience. Do you remember? We talked about her going to the fields of a local landowner to begin to, the word there is, is called gleaning. She was in the fields picking up the leftover grain and she encounters what we remember, what we described as the kindness of the law, the kindness of the Torah which is this built-in provision in the law of Moses, in the Mosaic law, and the law of God that would look after and provide for everybody in society. It instructed farmers, do you remember, to not harvest every single inch of their field, but leave the gleanings for the poor. And these laws were the bedrock of that society. And so here's Ruth back in Israel, and she's, or she's in Israel for the first time but with Naomi, trying to provide for herself and her mother-in-law in the fields. And the, the kindness of the law is just at the backdrop to this story where we see um, the people of God and the way that they adhere to the law, caring for the most vulnerable, welcoming the stranger and the foreigner in that sense. And remember, this is, in a sense, taught in the law to the people of Israel by God because they themselves once were poor in Egypt. And it says in Deuteronomy, Remember you too, you were destitute slaves in Egypt and that's why I'm commanding you to do this, to provide, to, to, to not harvest every pick, but to leave enough for those who do not have enough. Um, so protection and defense of the poor, of the destitute, of the foreigner, of the stranger is embedded right in to the Exodus story and right into the Mosaic law and right into the story of God. And that's the backdrop to this story of Ruth. Um, God's making a liberating people and he's liberating uh, them through the law. And do you remember Jesus in Matthew 23? He says that the weighty things of the law are justice and mercy and truth. And so we get a, a, a sense of that in this story of Ruth. Um, and Ruth, not only does she encounter, in a sense, she encounters the kindness of the law, but she also, do you remember, encounters uh, the kindness, the favor of this man, Boaz. This man, Boaz, the landowner who owned the land that Ruth was gleaning from. 
Um, and he says these beautiful words. You remember to Ruth. And remember, the book of Ruth continues to remind us Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth is a Moabite. Ruth is a Moabite. Do you remember Ruth's a Moabite? She's a Moabite from Moab, the Moabite from Moab. It does not want you to forget in chapter two um, who she is. But Boaz says this to her, the Lord repay you for what you've done. Repay you, Ruth, for your faithfulness to Naomi, for your sacrifice to Naomi. And a full reward will be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to find refuge. It's a beautiful little, little verse. And Stephanie spoke on this last week. I referenced it. Um, the whole story of Ruth hinges then on this encounter of this destitute woman coming into contact with the landowner himself, Boaz, and the kindness that he showed to her. And he makes provision for her to be able to get more than she ever thought she would. And when she returns back home to Naomi, Naomi says, may he be blessed uh, by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living of the dead. And so this uh, Naomi, who's been quiet up to this point, suddenly comes alive hope. Boaz, this man, this favorable landowner, has been kind to Ruth and has, has given her more than she ever could have needed in terms of provision. And, um, and there's a little interesting hint right at the end of chapter two. This man is a close relative of ours, one of the redeemers. Just hold that because that's what we're going to be looking at today um, in, a little bit, in a little moment. There's a hint there of where we're going. Chapter three, I want to really recommend that you check out the podcast to listen to what Stephanie shared last week on chapter three as the story progresses because what she shared was wonderful. Um, you remember chapter three, the harvest was now over and then uh, the gleaning had stopped and Naomi begins to take charge, do you remember? And uh, she, in a huge, in a move of huge risk and desperation, she begins to think about a way where they can survive. And she goes and prepares Ruth, sends her to the threshing floor to make her move and present herself to Boaz, um, which would have communicated to Boaz in no uncertain terms that I am available, that I am available to be your wife. And so what a huge risk that this desperate situation has driven Naomi and Ruth to. But they're women surviving, resilient, and making moves, taking initiative, um, perhaps giving the men in this story a little nudge to do what they should be doing all along, the privileged in this story to do what they should have been doing all along. So yeah, check out the podcast that uh, from last week um, to catch up on that. Um, on the encounter and the threshing floor, all the hopes, dreams, and the risk that were wrapped up in this young Moabite woman putting herself out. And then there's Naomi in the background praying that something will happen. And we get this little verse at the end of chapter three in verse 18. Then Naomi said the whole encounter had happened. And then Ruth returns and she comes back and Naomi says, wait my daughter until you find out what happens for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. There's a theme there of waiting just waiting. That's where we're at today. We're going to look at chapter four and close out this story, but it hangs right at the end of chapter three. This story hangs in a waiting. And maybe some of you today are in that place. Um, I want to speak hope to you. And I want to say that there's a lot of waiting in the story of God. And it's reflected a lot in the season of Advent that we're in as we wait um, and anticipate the coming of the King Jesus. Um, this is a season of waiting and anticipation. Maybe that's the season that you're in. Maybe you're waiting on something to happen and God to move. Stay strong. Hold in there. God is on your story. God is with you. 
God is at work in, in behind the scenes. God is with you. Um, chapter four, you want to open your Bibles. It's going to come up on the screen behind me. Um, there's Bibles on your tables. You've got maybe a smartphone app or whatever. Um, open that. We're going to read chapter four, and then we're going to just look at a few observations and um, bring this to a close today. So chapter four says this. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you do... It will be if if you will redeem it, do so. But if uh, you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am the next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, "On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the dead, the name of the dead, with this property." At this, the guardian redeemer said then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal, took off his shoe, and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. A little strange little uh, ceremonial thing there. Interesting. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today your witnesses that I have brought from Naomi, all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have acquired, also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with this property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Epathra and be famous in Bethlehem through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be that of Perez, whom Tamor bore to Judah. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, praise to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he be famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than you uh, and who is better to you than seven sons has given, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Interesting little mention there of... Uh, Quite an interesting, important character in the story, um, King David. And then you have this genealogy um, at the end that follows the line of Perez right through to King David, which um, you can see there on the screen. So the story that we've followed so far, that we've recapped this morning, is coming to an end. But in this chapter, chapter four, which we've just read, there's some strange things going on that sound really strange to modern ears, sound really strange to us in our our thinking around relationships and marriage and 
and children and family and all of those things. Um, but let me explain what's going on. Maybe we'll think about today, the backdrop. It's co- the story's coming to a rather complicated end, and here's why. There are some things here that need to be sorted out, some things that need to be clarified. And Boaz goes into town, goes to the city gate, and he, uh, he happens, to, happens to bump into the guardian redeemer, the kinsman redeemer. Um, and like any drama we might read about or watch, it's good to get a sense of the context here. Um, so like in chapter two, we had the backdrop of the kindness of the law with the gleanings. So the backdrop to this chapter is the kinsman redeemer laws. What are they? You might be asking, what is this concept of kinsman redeemer? Well, throughout the story, uh, this term redeemer or kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer is mentioned. And it is the, the Hebrew word for that is the legal term for someone who has the obligation to redeem a relative who is in serious difficulty. You can read all about that in Leviticus um, 25 and also mentioned throughout the the book of Ruth. Let me explain this. So it's important to get this. It's an important, it was an important principle of Israelite tradition and law um, and also of other uh, other traditional uh, societies in that day that land could not be bought and sold. And land means provision, it means sustenance, it means survival. The land was thought to belong to God and by God's will came under the stewardship then of the families who would decide what to do with the land, how to farm it, how it will grow. And so for the first time in this story, we've here mentioned the land that Elimelech had. Do you remember he was in the chapter one, he left the land in famine, he left land behind. And here we see it mentioned again in chapter four, what happened to the land? It's not clear. He left it, maybe he leased it to somebody, who knows, during the famine. But apparently there's land in the family in some kind of limbo and we need to sort out uh, it needs to be sorted out. Its destiny needs to be sorted out. Um, who would redeem the land? Who would pay Elimelech's debt? And in the meantime, Elimelech's widow, Naomi, she's the apparent her- inheritor of this land. Um, this is strange because in the Torah, there is never really any mention of widows um, actually gaining the land. And so the Book of Ruth is doing some interesting things here. And so she'll not be selling the land um, and no one will be buying it as some translations express. In the exchange, Ruth as well will not be bought or sold because Israel in Israel, wives were not property that could be bought or sold. But we have this limbo though. We have this what will happen to the land conundrum. Um, Naomi doesn't have the resources to buy it back and pay off the loan and thus redeem it. So she's taken the risk that she did in chapter three to, to, to look out for an individual who might be able to redeem it, this redeemer character. Um, and that's how we've got to today. And so what we really have here in the background uh, is this, these procedures, these laws that are concerning Leverite marriage for handling such a situation in which a man died without having fathered a son who would inherit the family land. And it actually involved the man's brother marrying his uh, uh, brother's widow um, with the hope that they would have a son and from a legal angle, that son would then inherit the land. That is all sounds very, very strange to us, but this was actually our incredibly radical and restorative law um, in God's law that kept land within families and provided for the families. So although it sounds strange to us, all of this stuff that's going on here, and bear with me, I know there's a lot of teaching this morning, 
it's actually a, a radical thing and it's, it's, it was a restorative thing. So the relative, who's often a brother, steps in and he marries his dead brother's wife and he is known as the kinsman redeemer. That's the term that we saw in the story so far. In the story of Ruth, there is no brother. There's no brother, but there is this distant relative who we meet in chapter four, the kinsman redeemer, who Boaz happens to bump into at the gate. And Boaz, it turns out, is second in line. It's been mentioned throughout the story all along. So they gotta sort some stuff out. So Boaz goes down to the gate, calls the elders, calls the kinsman redeemer in, and they decide to sort it all out. Um, and the kinsman redeemer, as they're talking, um, they, he discovers the part of the deal is that the Moabite, um, mentioned again, Ruth, the Moabitess, is part of the deal. Strictly speaking, I suppose he would have married Naomi, but Naomi is perhaps beyond the age of childbearing. So he would then be faced with marrying Ruth, the Moabite. And so the uh, anonymous um, kinsman redeemer is in a bit of a predicament. Should he step in and redeem this whole situation? Um, or um, is this gonna be too much for him? The trouble for him is that doing all this is gonna be really costly to him. It's gonna cost him money to take on more land, to marry Ruth, to father a son uh, who's gonna inherit the land. It's a big undertaking and in this sense, he'd be risking his own family and his own security by doing this. And so he opts out, he opts out because um, he perhaps feels like he's overstretching or he's putting his existing family security at risk. He's, he's choosing between a clash of responsibilities, he's choosing the responsibilities that he currently has. Um, and so in a sense, we probably shouldn't uh, judge him. In a sense, if this was a romantic comedy, this is the point in the story where there's like, ah, a sigh of relief. I think this might work out. I think this romance might happen. I think Boaz and Ruth might get together. And the one thing standing in the way is this guy and he happens to step out of the way. That's what's going on. That's the scene. And we have this weird elaborate ceremony where there's like, he takes off his shoe, there's the sandal. It's a this what they did uh, as a sign of um, legalizing a transaction. And it says this in verse eight. So the, the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal and Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, Malon. I have acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow is my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with this property so that his name will not disappear from among this family or his hometown, today you are my witnesses. Hooray! So Boaz is free to marry Ruth and take on the land of Elimelech and the whole estate and within it, Ruth and Naomi, these two destitute women who've traveled from Moab back to Israel, taking huge risks. Ruth being a stranger, there is a, there is a climaxing of the story coming together where Boaz steps in and he much like mirroring the God, the God that he follows brings them in under his wing and brings them in under his family. And what's really interesting next, um, now that we've talked about the kinsman redeemer and established that is um, there is this conversation that opens up perhaps even to us today. And I wanna call that enlarging the circle of belonging. 
the Ruth text is doing something. It's trying to ask some questions to the reader. Um, in verse 11 in Ruth uh, chapter 4, it says, The elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman who's coming into your home like Leah, or like Rachel and Leah, who built up the family of Israel. May you have standing and be famous in Bethlehem. And though the offspring the Lord gives you by this woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamor bought, uh, bore to Judah. So the elders of the village bless this whole thing um, and they immediately align Ruth with the matriarchs in the story of Israel. They immediately mention Rachel and Leah and Tamar, which is really interesting because the reader, we the reader, the reader uh, at that time as well is faced with these three stories now of women that behave in unusual ways there's the story of Ruth we've talked about. But secondly, there's also the story that reminds us that Ruth happens to be a Moabite whose origins come from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And thirdly, there's the story of Tamar who dressed as a prostitute to seduce Judah. And in all three stories mentioned in this little line, you have women who've had to resort to desperate measures to get men to do what men were required to do the whole time is an interesting observation. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout all of Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better than you to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the woman living there said, Naomi has a son. It's interesting, an observation of that part of the passage, that the shift is actually back on Naomi. Ruth has got married. Ruth has had the son now, but the focus here is actually on Naomi. It's a, there's a sense that Naomi, this, this book that we've been looking at over the last six weeks could actually be called Naomi actually be called the story of Naomi because it's really a lot about Naomi's story and journey from death to life or life to death to life. Um, in verse 14 to 17, Naomi seems to be finally restored to herself. The blessing of the women is addressed to Naomi. The women realize that it is Naomi who is, is fulfilled in the birth of this child. Because although the child is born of Ruth, it really is born to Naomi. And the women realize that the birth is not just about carrying on this lineage. They know that it's actually going to renew Naomi in her old age. It's going to help her recover her original name. Remember, she called herself Mara and bitterness. This is a redemptive story. A son is born to Naomi, it says. It's really interesting. The child becomes Naomi's Goel. Is the name Goel? And then there's the preciousness of Ruth is mentioned in this, in, in this passage as well. Here we see uh, that Naomi will be restored because her daughter-in-law is more to her than seven of her own sons. There's an acknowledgement and an honoring of Ruth in this story. Her love, her hesed love, her role in this story. It's, it's fascinating. And it's worth mentioning that Ruth is not accepted in the story because she's just given birth. She is already worthy. If you look back in chapter three, she is already worthy. Um, her relationship to Naomi is not through 
blood, but it is through this affection and this commitment and this steadfast, faithful love. Really, really interesting. And then in verse 18, it all switches from this wonderful scene of, of, of marriage and birth. It switches back to this miraculous, hard to understand world of men, uh, begetting men, begetting men. All of the, the genealogy focuses back again on the men, which I'm sure is just really not done a lot, is it? Um, of course it is. It's all throughout the scriptures, but this, this story is, is set in a man's world, um, but it's a story about these two women fighting, doing all that they can, and God's hand being on them. Um, and so the story finishes out showing you the patriarchal lineage of Perez through to David. Amazingly, Ruth the Moabite is included in the, in the line of the greatest king of Israel, King David. And she's included in the line, as we know in Matthew, of the, the king that we are waiting for today in this Advent season, King Jesus. Ruth is mentioned in the lineage of the Messiah of Israel, which is who is the true redeemer. It's a fantastic, incredible story. So as we reflect on the ending of this story, of this complicated but wonderful ending to this incredible story, we are left to consider redeemer as people who follow Jesus. As we look back on this ancient text, what has this got to do with us? What does any of this story have to do with us? How does it relate to identity, to borders, to belonging, to survival? How does it relate to the things that divide us and the things that should unite us? Can we see in the reading of Ruth that there is some kind of enlarging, enlargening of the circle of belonging constantly in the story of God? That the text of Ruth is pushing the big story of God's work in the world along. It's asking and raising some really interesting questions because in this story, what we see is the unfolding of a Moabite into the very lineage of the Messiah, the King of Israel, which is just crazy and subversive and completely unexpected to the reader. It's absolutely fascinating. I'm gonna read this quote from uh, Jacobson in his book, Redefining Family. It says this, the child who was born to Ruth as Goel to Naomi becomes Goel to the whole community as one of the ancestors of David. The implications are clear. Without family redefined, there can be no promised future for this nation of Israel, no messianic promise for the world. The salvation of the world depends upon this redefined notion of family that celebrates the inclusion of a foreign enemy and a migrant widow as daughter-in-law, wife, and finally mother. Because family is taken out of the categories of property and law and firmly esconded into the category of covenant and commitment, promise is actually possible. The recognition of family newly defined as growing out of acts of love and devotion and inclusive of persons whom the law might be apt to exclude marks the book of Ruth as a crucial witness to the often overlooked radical nature of the biblical view of family. That's a very wordy quote, but it is a beautiful quote. As we, as we move from the, thinking about the story of Ruth in the text, as we think about the world that we live in today, Redeemer, 
we need to do a little bit of imaginative thinking about how that the circle is enlarged within the family of God. One possible way of reading Ruth and its implications is that the pursuit of Hesed committed love, even unorthodox, quote, family arrangements are possible, not just temporarily, but like in this case, wholesale permanent adjustments. This is evident as we look at the lineage of David and Ruth being grafted into the story that ultimately leads to Jesus, that leads to David and then leads to Jesus. And it begs us to consider the implications as the people of God today, particularly in light of the politics and culture of our world. In what ways might the motivations and events and outcomes of this chapter influence us as Christians today? What's the deal here? What's so what? What's the big idea? What's the point? The implication here in this story is that those that you thought were out are in. Those that you thought were out are in. The law of Leverite marriage, as originally understood, didn't include Ruth. Ruth was not supposed to be included. She was a foreigner. And yet, Boaz acts to extend in the light of her vulnerability and her good character. He extends, in a sense, the wings and the refuge of the people of God to her, a foreigner. Law in the Hebrew Bible was intended to ensure kindness in the community. Yet in this instance, the kindness, the unintended outcome of a strict application of the law would have resulted in unkindness, would have resulted in exclusion. The motivation was there enough for Boaz to seek to change it. What are the implications for us today as a community of Jesus followers? When we think about widening and enlarging this circle of belonging in the story that we are part of, not based on ethnicity, or any other kind of identity, but purely on behavior, on the Hesed love, the kind of love that Ruth showed to Naomi, the kind of love that Boaz showed to Ruth, and ultimately the kind of love that God shows to his people. This narrative is reshaping who is in the family of God and who is not. In the very lineage of Jesus, we have this Moabite woman, Ruth, unbelievable. And I, I believe under the reading of this story, there's l- several borders that are crossed. We move from this confined and well-ordered world defined by these clean and perceivable and predictable laws. And the crossover here for the reader is into a world that is less predictable and more in need of being read and deciphered and interpreted the spirit of the law. In the country of the book of Ruth, the intent of the law is the intent of the law is more important than the application of the law. In that sense, it is an effective illustration of what Jesus said when he said that the Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath. I guess we have this interaction here between the law and compassion, between the law and kindness, between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, between the application of the law and the intent of the law. There's a conversation that is going on here. But the principle is established. The law should ensure compassion. 
and kindness. Hesed love. It also talks to us about stereotypes. The book of Ruth begins the process of challenging stereotypes and invites the reader to consider a new story. In the beginning, we have these embittered Bethlehemites who might perceive that Moab was the proper place for someone who was mean, tight-fisted like Elimelech. But as the story proceeds, the reader must face the uncomfortable prospect that Moab takes in his family and that the widow Naomi finds a home there for her husband and boys in the first place. And as it continues, Ruth and Orpah, the foreigners, continue to care for Naomi, breaking down stereotypes again, even after the death of their husbands, breaking down stereotypes by caring and loving Naomi. Indeed, by not leaving her, they continue to act as in as if the marriage still existed and was in effect. Naomi had to actually plead for them to stay, but they, as we already talked about this morning, pleaded to stay with her. And then again, we see these stereotypes redrawn, revisited by Boaz, who pays attention to Ruth and sees beyond her identity as a Moabite and sees her love and loyalty and care for Naomi. The book of Ruth is redrawing the circle of belonging, but it's also helping us to think about and engage with the whole idea of how we stereotype and how we label and how we place identities on people and fail to see them at the human level. And the final evidence that stereotypes have been undermined and a new understanding of community has been created is the inclusion in the family line of Perez, of David, of Jesus. Most significantly, we reckon with the uncomfortable fact, as we've said, that the great King David has a Moabite in his bloodline. The self-understanding of the nation has extended now, has extended beyond their ethnicity to include a foreigner in that line. Big questions are being raised in this book. I'm not giving you a lot of answers. I'm just letting those questions hang in the air for us to think about and consider what is the redemptive work of God in the world? What does it say to us about our position of privilege and power? Are we like Boaz who sleeps on the threshing floor and is in no rush to act? Or are we desperate like Ruth? Depends what, depends what your story is. Perhaps a lot of us might identify with different characters in this story, but perhaps for a lot of us, we can be the privileged who can be lying on the threshing floor slow to act, needing a nudge. Perhaps the Spirit's nudging us today about that. The book uncovers this startling possibility that belonging can become, can come from more than just bloodline, but from behavior. And social responsible behavior might even trump bloodline. Thus, Ruth can be considered legally a part of that community. It deals with the privilege of Boaz's family belonging and national identity and how that gives him relationship and responsibility over Ruth and Naomi. I'm just going to let those questions hang in the air. I'm going to let you think about them. I'm going to let you meditate on them. But this complicated, this beautiful love story has come to a somewhat complicated ending and has resolved in this beautiful redemption of these two women who were lost, who were destitute and are now included in the family. This is the last point I want to make today, Redeemer, about 
an observation in the book of Ruth. Because there are two words in the book of Ruth that I believe we can think about today as well. Two movements. Teshuva is a word that means repentance. That's our movement toward God. And there's the word geula, which means redemption. This word is mentioned 14 times in chapter four. The kinsman redeemer, redeemer, redemption, kinsman redeemer. This is God's movement towards us. And in a sense, in chapter one, let's just look at that first word, teshuva. We see Naomi turning back to the homeland. Teshuva, repentance. Her move back toward God. We see the first appearance of that word. It, it means, as I've said, repentance. In essence, the word means a return to God. And interestingly, it's not a one-time return. It's a process. And we've seen the process play out throughout this whole story. So a repentance, a journey back toward God. And throughout this chapter four, we get this different word repeated time and time again. The Hebrew word, gula, redemption, occurs, as I say, 14 times. And it's paralleling the word teshuva. The movement toward God is paralleling the movement that we make toward God, the movement of God toward us. There's a parallel thing going on in Ruth here with these two words. And in chapter four, in the person of Boaz, as he takes the step to go to the city gate, to call the elders, to, to, to bring this whole story, this complicated story to an end, to redeem the story of Ruth and Naomi, we see the movement, the redeeming movement of God in the story. We see the subversive nature of Ruth in the story where God moves toward them in love. It's a beautiful image. In a sense, it reminds us of our own need of God to move toward us. In Boaz, we have a Christological character here. We have Boaz is the Christ figure in this story. He is representative of God moving in love toward those that need him. The story might remind us of our own Despite our own privilege, it might also remind us of our own alienation, our own poverty, our own destitution, and the liberating kindness of God toward us. He sees beyond the, beyond the many identities that we carry, and he sees our humanity, and he moves toward us. And this story mirrors God's love for us, a God who radically commits himself to us faithfully, beyond boundaries and beyond borders and crossing borders in order to reach us. There's no more greater boundary crossing, border crossing love than the love of Christ that came for us on the cross. And in this story of Ruth, Boaz is the Christ figure. And we know Christ is the center of our story as Christians. He is the ultimate redeemer. He is the ultimate movement of the love of God toward us. He is the one that has come to take our broken stories where we have been in a far off land, where we have run into destitution, where we have had nowhere to turn. He is the one that has moved toward us to redeem our bitterness and turn it into a redemptive story of inclusion into his family. He is remaking us into new creations, adopting us into his new family, the family of God. In this story of Ruth, we see all these hints, all these questions, all these considerations, all these hints though of what God is doing in the world. 
And we get this amazing picture of a God he is always enfolding, always including, always enlarging the circle of belonging, always welcoming into the family of God. That is the movement of God in this book. And for us today in Redeemer, it raises the question to us, I guess, just about what the defining story is that we feel that we are part of the defining story that we feel that we're part of. Many of you have identified with different characters in the story of Ruth from chapter one through to chapter four. But ultimately as a community, this book raises really important questions for us and helps us to think about what is on the heart of God, how God sees every human, how God includes in his family every human and how that might inform the kind of community that we seek to be here in Redeemer. A kind of community that welcomes everyone to be part of the family of God. There is wonderful things to find out, to explore in this beautiful, beautiful book. I'd love to invite the band up. We're gonna come to the table. We're gonna land in the bread and the wine as we do every week. And that feels like a little bit of a, a, a sharp end and a right turn. Why are we going into Eucharist at this point? But there is no greater image of the welcome of Jesus and the Jesus story than the table that he laid. The table that is for his family, for sons and daughters to come and eat and find provision and find redemption. And so in the bread and in the wine, we have the love of God, the movement of God toward us demonstrated. This is a table that's for everyone. It's open, it's an open table. As we say in Redeemer, we don't make the guest list. Jesus makes the guest list. It's his table. And all that is required for this table is a desire to come into the family of God, to meet the person of Jesus and become part of this new thing that God's doing in the world. If that's what you feel today, you're welcome at the table to break bread. You're welcome at the table to take wine. You're, you're welcome today to be part of the community of God by coming to the table. Make a move of repentance toward God. He is there waiting for you today to bring all that you need, your provision and sustenance and love, whatever you need today, he's waiting at the table.